Alright ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the 20th Century Movie Club. This is Volume 3, and I am once again joined by my co-host, Mike. How are things today? Things are good, Dana. How are you doing? Things are growing great, Mike. Thank you so much. So I, I can't believe we're already at Volume 3 of this one. I, I wanted to, to ask you real quick if you could talk a little bit about the letterbox page that you set up. Sure. So I kind of thought, you know, one of the things that that sometimes drives me nuts about podcasts is when people don't put in their show notes the movies that they talk about or there's not a place to find the movies that they've talked about. And so I thought given especially the format of this show, people might want to know the movies that we've talked about and see, you know, where they can find them and stuff like that. So I have set up a letterboxed list where I will update it yeah, 48 to 72 hours after the episode because we, we kind of like these movies to be a surprise. And I will keep a running track of all the movies that we talk about on this show, I will put in the notes part of the letterbox list what episode we talk about them on. That way, if people are like, you know, or sometimes what happens is you hear us talk about a movie, you go watch it, and then you're like, oh, I want to listen to them talk about it again, and because I don't remember exactly what they said, and you can't find the episode. This way, now you can just go to the Letterboxd account, and or the Letterboxd list, and you can see where and when we talked about all these movies. Absolutely, and I will include a link in this episode's show notes, and I will retroactively include links in the previous two episodes of the 20th Century Movie Club. So people can set if you haven't set up a letterbox account, go ahead and set one up and you can start following uh, both uh, Mike and I on there and and the page he set up. Okay, so I'm going to turn it over to you for the first pick. What do you got? So, Dana, what month is it? Uh, It is February. And February means love is in the air. It is it is that time of year when Hallmark has convinced us to buy a lot of really overpriced cards and watch a lot of romantic movies. So this week, I'm actually kind of confining uh, my suggestions to movies that I think are, are good romance movies. And you don't have to watch them on Valentine's Day or anything like that. It's just if you're in the mood for some romance in your life, I'm going to kind of just talk about three movies that I think are good. Good examples of that. And the first one I've got, we're going to set the Wayback Machine all the way back to 1940. My first movie is George Cukor's The Philadelphia Story. Have you ever seen The Philadelphia Story, Dana? I have not. I am uh, writing it down as we speak. I've heard the title. I've certainly heard the title. So this is a very important movie to me for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's one of the all-time greatest romantic comedies ever. But it was also one of my gateway drugs to to classic cinema. I saw this movie the first time when I was maybe 17. And you know, when you're 17, 16, unless you grow up in a really film geek-centric household, old black and white movies tend to not appeal to you. But I saw this one and was so blown away by the rapid fire dialogue and the plot structure that felt so modern, even though the movie at that time was you know, 50, 60 years old, and it's even older now. Classic screwball comedy uh, starring, uh, here's this for a heavy hitter cast lineup, Cary Grant, Katherine Hepburn, and Jimmy Stewart, all in the same movie. I I mean, you can't, I'm not even sure I can think of a movie today that has that kind of star wattage in it. I mean, honestly, the Marvel movies are probably the ones that come the closest in terms of star caliber in a single movie. And all three of them 
just bring their A games to this movie. They they revel in the dialogue. They revel in the interplay. It is just an, a, a wonderful example of classic Hollywood screwball comedies. As you were talking, I'm just sort of pulling it up on on Google and IMDb, and I am I'm excited. I've got a lot of homework to do with this one because this looks like. Any idea? Let me ask this. Any idea what's the the fastest avenue in which I can find this movie and watch it? What I would really recommend, Criterion last year put out uh, just an absolutely beautiful Blu-ray of it. It's a a 2K restoration. It is absolutely gorgeous. It's got more supplemental features than than you know you know what to do with. So that would be I think the best way to to see it. It is readily available for streaming on all major streaming services. It's not streaming for free anywhere, but it's available for rent or purchase on every major streaming service that you could use. Let's just give me a the basic synopsis of the film. So Catherine Hepburn plays a wealthy socialite in Philadelphia who has previously been married to Cary Grant's uh, C.K. Dexter Haven. They had a very tumultuous marriage, had a nasty divorce, and she is now getting married to a a, a man named George Kittredge, who's a, a good stable husband. Jimmy Stewart and Ruth Hussey play reporters for a, a tabloid that are sent there to cover the wedding, basically. And without going into too many details, uh, Cary Grant comes back uh, and has a big impact on the wedding. And it's a just a, a classic screwball comedy. It's actually part of a, a genre that really occurred a lot in the 40s and 50s called comedy of remarriage. And the idea behind a comedy of remarriage was since the Hayes Production Code, for those who don't know, the Hayes Production Code was a code that Hollywood basically imposed to keep government censorship out. And it outlined a bunch of things that they could and couldn't do in movies. And one of the things they couldn't do was show adultery or infidelity or anything along those lines. So what would happen in comedies of remarriage is couples at the start of the movie would get divorced, they would end up flirting with other people, and then would very often come back together at the end of the movie. It's a way to sort of show adultery or infidelity without actually showing adultery or infidelity. And Philadelphia Story is a textbook example of it. Uh, And it is just absolutely a delightful way to spend a couple of hours of your time. And for very, very long time listeners of the show, going all the way back about four and a half years ago, we did an episode on the history of the MPAA. We did spend a little time talking about the Hayes Code. And for listeners, if you just want to take a few minutes, Google the Hayes Code and look at the long, long list of things you were not allowed to do. It's pretty amazing. It is. But on the flip side, I also think that's why we got so many interesting movies in the 30s and 40s, because they had to be really creative to get around these things. And so sometimes, you know, restrictions foster creativity. Now, I'm not pro Hayes Code by any means. I think it was an abomination, but it can't be denied. We got some really interesting movies because of the Hayes Code. And I love just the rebellion that happened in the 1960s where filmmakers and studios were just saying blank the Hayes Code from this point on. You know, we're just going to start yep. making the movie. So, but that's a that's an episode for I'm sorry, that's a discussion for its its own episode. We may have to look at that sometime. So, I guess that means I'm up now. So, for my first pick and I'm sorry to say that I didn't have a theme between these three movies. They're just completely so random from each other. But that being said, the first movie I went with was released in 1986, and it is Back to School. Now, this is a movie... 
that stars Rodney Dangerfield, Sally Kellerman, Keith Gordon, Burt Young, Robert Downey Jr., and William Zapka. A quick synopsis, this is the story of uh, Rodney Dangerfield's character, Thornton Mellon, who, through a series of interactions with his son, decides that he is going to attend college. It's pointed out very early on that he didn't go to college. He became a very successful businessman without going to college. Again, I'm not even going to get into spoilers about how he gets accepted into college, but I will say this. This is Rodney Dangerfield at his absolute best. And I know some of people will say that Caddyshack is his best film. And I love Caddyshack and I love him in Caddyshack. But this is a movie that was tailor-made for him. This was a script that was written for him. And this is a movie that is rated PG-13, which to know Rodney Dangerfield and to know some of his humor is to understand that he did some amazing things with this film in a very sort of constrained way because of the rating. Guess who's getting some class? I'm going to college. Rodney Dangerfield's going back to school. That's what I call marine biology. Hey, boys, here's a couple of pens in case you learn how to write. (laughs) When I used to dream about going to college, this is the way I always pictured it. Wait a minute, when did you dream about going to college? When I used to fall asleep in high school. Here's a book on sex education. Let me see that, The world's oldest living freshman. Well, he left out the most important thing. Where to get it? Say it! Say it! Good teacher. (laughs) He really seems to care. (laughs) About what, I have no idea. A little something for the kids. Okay, take that. It's okay, huh? I don't have any kids. No, because we're here. Get yourself some kids. We're here. Take it all, all right? What a woman. She is the teacher. I know I like teachers. Do something wrong to make you do it over again. (laughs) What do you say you and I have dinner tonight? Actually, I'd like to join you, but I have class tonight. Why don't you call me sometime when you have no class? He's not just the big man on campus. Hey, folks, it's on me. Shakespeare for everyone, okay? Uh, You too, honey. Ooh, I'd like to tame your shrew. He's the wildest man on campus. Shake it up, baby! Say when. Right after this drink. (laughs) Rodney Dangerfield, back to school. Baby. I just want to point out there is a particular scene in the movie where Rodney Dangerfield attends a business class and he's, he go, he gets at odds with the professor who's teaching a class on how to start a business. And it is one of just the most laugh out loud scenes in a movie that is filled with laugh out loud scenes. There are cameos in this movie from Sam Kinison, from Kurt Vonnegut, from Oingo Boingo, Danny Elfman's band. I watched it last night and I have to say that this is easily one of my favorite comedies to come out of the 1980s. So Mike, I will turn it over to you. Have you seen Back to School? I'm adding it to the list because technically I've seen it. I saw it in 1986 or 87, probably when it came out on video, but I haven't seen it since then. So I, I, I vaguely remember it. I remember that Rodney Dangerfield is great. I remember really liking it because Keith Gordon was in it, who at that time in the 80s was you know actually kind of a, a big deal but I uh, I couldn't tell you much more about it so I'm gonna add it to the list of, of movies to watch because I, I feel like I need to see it again so that I can kind of talk about it in more depth excellent all right well I look forward to having that discussion because I probably it was probably 15 years since I'd seen the movie and when Ashley and I recorded an episode that will be released by the time this comes out about sort of the evolution of the teen high school comedy, 
we kind of kicked around the fact that there's not a lot of college movies out there. Well, there's a few, but you know, this one, again, this one is not a serious film by any stretch of the imagination. It's just a lot of fun. But if that one immediately popped in my mind, I'm like, well, what about Back to School? That's such a fun movie. It is the Rodney Dangerfield show through and throughout. I mean, he is so damn charismatic and he's the type of person you just want to hang out with like like it is just it was such a delight to watch that movie so i'm really excited to hear your thoughts after revisiting it what is your next film so we're we're coming all the way back forward here for my next film i think it's oddball ways and it's oddball relationship it fits exactly what i want out of most romantic movies and uh that is uh 1997's gross point blank i'm i'm hoping i'm assuming you have seen this one Yes, I have seen this one. And it uh, there's there's uh I was when we were talking in volume two about John Cusack and, you know, about all some of the great roles that he's been in. You know, this was one of the first ones that popped in my mind just automatically. So, yes, absolutely seen the movie. Absolutely love it. And I felt a little bad about recommending Cusack movies two weeks in a row. But this one's such a, a favorite movie of mine. And it kind of just fit uh, with, you know, sort of what I wanted to talk about. It just felt like a good time to recommend it because it's just such a, a an interesting, funny, uh, action-filled, romantic movie. For those who don't know or haven't seen it, without getting into too many spoilers, John Cusack plays a professional hitman named Martin Blank, who gets invited to his 10-year high school reunion back in Gross Point, Michigan. And he has to decide whether he should go and and you know, not really giving a spoiler away because there's no movie. Otherwise, he does decide to go back to his reunion where he re-encounters his high school girlfriend played by Minnie Driver, as well as a bunch of people he went to high school with. And just his interactions going back to this world that is so alien to him now, given what his life is at this point, is just really a lot of fun to watch. Sir, I want to read you something. I'm working, Marcella. Dear Points High alumni, can you believe it's been 10 years since you left Gross Point? Don't tease me, you know what I do for a living. I just honestly don't know what I have in common with those people anymore. And what am I going to say? Killed the president of Paraguay with a fork. How have you been? Go see some old friends. Have some punch. Visit with what's her name? Debbie. Don't kill anybody for a few days. See what it feels like. I'll give it a shot. No, no, don't give it a shot. Don't shoot anything. I, uh, I'm a pet psychiatrist. I sell couch insurance. I lead a weekend men's group. We specialize in ritual killings. Hi, I'm Martin. You remember me? Oh, I know who you are. What I miss? What, since you stood me up on prom night and vanished without a word? It's directed by George Armitage, who did another great cult movie named Miami Blues. And what I really like is Armitage does a really good job with these sort of screwball dialogue. I mean, this movie has its DNA in the Philadelphia story in those 1940s screwball movies. But he also handles the action scenes. There's not a ton of action scenes, but the action scenes that are there are really well done. They're really clearly shot. There is a fight scene for Jackie Chan fans. They'll know this name. Benny the Jet Urquidez is in the movie. There's a fight scene uh, that he's in that is just a spectacularly well choreographed martial arts scene. And it's, it's kind of one of those movies where you forget that John Cusack actually knows martial arts. He learned kickboxing for 
say anything and he continued to practice it. So it's it's a well done movie on a lot of different levels. And I just absolutely love the thing. You know, and again, I'm going to bring up a reoccurring theme that you and I have discussed between the three episodes that we've done so far. And I'm almost 100% sure that we will discuss this theme in subsequent episodes. And that is, once again, here we get a movie for adults. It is an R-rated movie. And again, it's a film that just couldn't be released today. Oh, it would be released today, but it would be a PG-13 movie and it would star The Rock. It is just not a movie that gets made today. And you talk about, you know, there is limited action scenes in it, but I don't even want to spoil who else is in the movie. Because if, if people haven't seen it, then one of uh, Cusack's foes, if you will, just is terrific in the movie. And again, I get nostalgic thinking about this movie. It came out 22 years ago, and it's just an era that doesn't exist anymore. And I know listeners are going to get so tired of hearing me saying it. This is why this show is called the 20th Century Movie Club, because we're, we're tapping into things that really don't exist anymore. And so many of these movies that we talk about are timeless. That's why I can go from 1940 to 1997, because the movies are timeless. The DNA is is the same in both of them. And, and yeah, like the technology ages, or maybe some of the the character interactions or or gender roles or things like that become dated. But for the most part, the themes, the stories, the the way the characters uh, behave, they're, they're timeless. They don't age, and so you can go back and watch them, and you should if you haven't go back and watch them. For my second pick, I think I'm going to get a little controversial with some of the listeners here because I am going to defend a movie that I think is very maligned by a lot of people. But it's one that I watched again last week, and it's probably the 25th time I've seen it. I'm watching this movie last week. I'm watching it from the perspective of, this is not a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination. Yet it gets lumped in to subsequent sequels that are just god-awful. Now, for long-time listeners of the show, you will know that my favorite film of all time is Jaws. It is an absolute masterpiece. It is a movie that I have seen more than any other film ever made. I can talk about the film for hours. It is my dream to visit Martha's Vineyard just to walk along some of the shooting locations of that movie. But I'm talking about Jaws 2 that was released in 1978. Or I'm here to tell listeners that if you haven't watched this movie in a long time, it is not a bad movie. When the movie Jaws first opened, it created a sensation. And shark sightings increased by the thousands in all the vast and unknown depths of the ocean. How could there have been only one? None of man's fantasies of evil can compare with the reality of Jaws. The all-new Jaws 2. See it before you go back in the water. It is a beautifully shot movie that has some sweeping cinematography, and I think everything about this movie is really good. Is it Jaws? Absolutely not. As a sequel to Jaws, I think it does a pretty damn good job. And I know I'm probably going to catch a lot of shit for saying this. Like, I don't think Jaws 3 and Jaws the Revenge are, are very good movies at all. I think Jaws 3 is watchable, but I think it's absurd. 
I think Jaws of Revenge is just a boring pile of shit. And I, I know I don't like to get negative too often, but that's the reality. But I, when, when I was watching Jaws 2 the other day, I said, you know, Roy Scheider is excellent in this film. I'm, I'm getting at a loss for words here, Mike, but I never thought I would do this, but I'm going to defend Jaws 2 and I'm going to make it my second pick for this episode. Dana Buckler out here with the hot takes, yeah. slinging those hot takes. Yeah. No, it, you know, one of the things that I always think about, I haven't seen Jaws 2 in years, but I have a soft spot for Jaws 3. So I get where you're coming from. You know, Jaws 3 has my boy Dennis Quaid in it. I can't hate that movie. It's it is bad. Jaws 2 is certainly better than Jaws 3. So I'm definitely not gonna not going to judge or push back on it. But one of the other things that I've liked that you said, as listeners know, and especially longtime listeners of your show know, we're huge fans of F this movie. We're huge fans of Patrick Bromley. And one of the things that Patrick always says that really when I first started listening to that podcast resonated with me is Every movie is somebody's favorite movie. And so we shouldn't be out here just, you know, it's one thing to be critical of movies that are bad, but we don't need to just, you know, dump on movies because people like them. And so the fact that you're finding things that you like in Jaws 2 and you think Jaws 2 has merit and and what I do remember of it is Scheider is good because Roy Scheider, especially at that time, was incapable of giving a bad performance. I mean, the guy just cranked out good performances left and right. Uh, and it was, you know, professionally well done. It's not the complete dumpster fire that, like you said, Jaws the Revenge is, which is most famous for, you know, Michael Caine's famous quote about he hasn't seen the movie, but he has seen the house that the movie bought him. Um, <laughs> but I think it's great that you're recommending that, you know, we shouldn't always just be recommending quote unquote classics on this show. The whole point of this show is about movies that mattered to us and movies that we personally think are important. So I would hope that, you know, at least listeners give it a try before they decide to uh, to pillory you on Twitter. Um, I'm sure that's not going to happen. I'm sure your mentions are going to just get dusted after this episode posts. <laughs> but uh, but nonetheless, I, I think it's great that you recommended it. I haven't seen it for a long time. I'm going to add it to the list and check it out and see. I probably I don't know that I'll be able to get to it by the next episode, but I am going to check it out so that we can talk about it down the road. You know, And I just want to point out a couple things about the movie uh, again. One thing I noticed about the film is that they really spared no expense when they made this sequel. Typically, well, the idea, first of all, the idea of a sequel in the 1970s, that was just really unheard of. With the exception of The Godfathers, sequels were always thought of as just a quick cash grab. Let's cash in on the popularity of a movie. But you can tell watching this movie that they put a lot of heart into this, into the production of this film. And there are some really, really incredible scenes in this movie. There's the scene, and I'm, I'm not going to spoil it. There's a scene involving a water skier, which is outstanding. There is a scene involving a helicopter, which still gets me. And there is a scene that still terrifies the, just the, just terrifies me to death where uh, a particular person is eaten by a shark in one just one bite and it just i've seen that movie so many times and it still gets to me roy scheider like you said it's a, just to echo what you just said he 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 doesn't give a bad performance in this movie and he, you're right from uh the french connection to jaws to even blue thunder i mean the the guy is a fantastic just a fantastic actor uh, i'd encourage everyone to just you know what give jaws to a second chance so i'll turn it over to you for your third pick so 
my third pick is the first part of a trilogy that uh, I would love to talk about in its entirety, but only one of them falls in the uh, 20th century. So I'm just going to talk about the first one. It is what I think is one of the most emotional, romantic, heartfelt, but truthful movies that I have ever seen in my life. I saw it first in 1995. It stuck with me. It stayed with me every day since then. And that is uh, Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise. So here we go. Richard Linklater, Dazed and Confused. Love that movie. I have acutely been aware of the entire Before trilogy and i have heard nothing but the most amazing praise for this film for all three of the films and i am almost disgusted with myself at the fact that i have not seen any of them yet and i think this is going to fall into one of those categories when i watch it that i'm going to be so pissed off at myself for having missed the opportunity to see these films earlier because i know they're going to be fantastic i don't have a legitimate excuse as to why i didn't want to see these films but it just, it, where, for whatever reason, it just never happened. You know, there have been times when I'm just scanning through movies to watch, and there it is. And, oh, there's something else that I haven't seen either. I'll watch that. So, Mike, I'm in, for the very first time in, since we've been doing this series, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't seen this movie. Well, don't be embarrassed. And you actually do get one advantage, which is you get the there was for those who don't know, just a quick plot synopsis of Before Sunrise. There's not really even spoilers to give away with it because it's literally a movie about two people talking. Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy are college students. They meet on a train outside of Vienna. They have an instant chemistry. She's taking the train back to Paris. He's got to catch a flight the next morning back to the U.S. And they decide to spend the night just wandering around Vienna getting to know one another all right I have an admittedly insane idea but if I don't ask you this it's just gonna haunt me the rest of my life I have no idea what your situation is but I feel like we have some kind of uh, connection right yeah me too great so listen here's the deal this is what we should do you should get off the train with me here in Vienna and come check out the town we just got into Vienna today and we're looking for something fun to do Sprechen Sie English yeah because yeah. uh, we speak German for a change now I'm gonna call my best friend in Paris, who I'm supposed to have lunch with in eight hours. Okay? Okay. Ring, ring. Pick up the phone. Uh, oh, hello? I don't think I'm gonna be able to make it for lunch today, I'm sorry. I met a guy on the train and I got off with him in Vienna, we're still there. Are you crazy? Probably. He has beautiful blue eyes. Nice pink lips, greasy hair. <laughs> I love it. I like to feel his eyes on me when I look away. You couldn't possibly know why a night like this is so important to my life right now. But it is. Since we're never going to see each other again, I don't think we should sleep together. Let's see each other again. I don't want you to break our vow, just so you can get laid. <laughs> Men are lucky we don't bite off the head after mating. Certain insects do that, you know, like spiders and stuff. Mm -hmm. We at least let you live. And it is on paper one of the most boring things you can possibly imagine. But in 
action on the screen with these two phenomenal actors. It is just such a beautiful movie. But you get an advantage, having not seen it, of you can watch all three of them. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, the the two sequels, all three movies were made nine years apart. And it catches up with the characters as they've aged in real time. You get the advantage of kind of watching all three back to back, which is, uh, uh, you don't get, it's a different vibe but it's it's an interesting and equally uh moving vibe one of the things that's really nice about the movies is i am more or less i'm a little bit younger than the characters in these movies but not not too much they were 23 i think in the they they were playing 23 in the first one and i want to say i was 19 when this came out I have kind of grown with the characters in this trilogy. And so it is interesting to see the first one is, again, without spoilers, is all about the idealized romantic notions of relationships. And by the time you get to the third one, again, without going into any spoilers, it's more about the realities of adult relationships and and what those actually entail and what it really does mean to be in love with somebody when you're 45 with kids versus when you're 23 and in Vienna. They're so good. You shouldn't be embarrassed. I'm actually envious because you get to see these movies for the first time. This is there was a a tweet going around a little while ago that if you could like blank any movies from your memory and rewatch them again for the first time, this trilogy would be at or near the top of the list for me. As far as if I could see these again for the first time, I would totally take the chance. As far as availability goes, uh, Before Sunrise is available on all major streaming services. It The trilogy will probably be available. I can't guarantee it. But for those who don't know, Criterion is starting their own streaming channel. I'm imagining that the trilogy will probably be available on that as well. And on top of that, Criterion has a box set of the trilogy that is just absolutely beautiful. Um, I feel like I'm being a Criterion shill this episode. And honestly, I I don't love Criterion. I think a lot of their discs are overpriced. But if you can catch them on the Barnes & Noble half price sales, they're totally worth it. And they do put out discs that are are gorgeous. Um, And the Before Trilogy box set is one that I think everybody should try and own if they collect physical media. What do we think about Ethan Hawke? I mean, this is a guy that I've I've grown up with as far as I remember him all the way back in The Explorers. And he's leading man material, but seems to, and this has got to be by choice, you know, he seems to pick these smaller projects, even up to, you know, last year's first reform. I mean, his body of work encompasses big studio films, tons of small indie films, just all over the place. And he, I think I can comfortably say that he's one of my favorite actors that I've ever, you know, he's absolutely one of my favorite actors. And I, like we talk about John Cusack, you know, not giving a bad performance. I'm I'm hard pressed to find a bad performance that Ethan Hawke has given. Even in The Purge, I enjoyed seeing him on on screen. So what are your thoughts on him? I First of all, first thought is it was Highway Goddamn Robbery that he did not get an Oscar nomination for First Reformed because that was the best performance I saw last year. He was amazing in that movie. Secondly, I think he's phenomenal. Uh, and what I love about him is, you're right, he tends to eschew major productions. You know, I mean, he was in the Magnificent Seven remake. He's been in some some fairly major movies. Training Day, obviously, is probably his biggest mainstream hit. But what I love is he takes indie pictures, but he 
a lot of them are genre pictures, too. He seems to really like genre. You mentioned The Purge. He was in Daybreakers. He's in uh, a really good little indie kind of time travel movie called Predestination. Uh, He did a sort of John Wick knockoff last year called 24 Hours to Live that wasn't great, but he was great in it. And it was kind of fun to see him in full like Keanu Reeves action hero mode. I love Ethan Hawke. I think he's always interesting. I think he picks interesting projects. I think he's the type of actor that when you see that he's in a movie, you may not like it, but you should at least flag it as something that you should see because it may not always come together and it may not always work. He's been in some very pretentiously bad movies. He was in one a few decades ago. I can't even quite remember. It's like the it's about the Chelsea Hotel. And it was just for me, it was completely unwatchable. But he is always interesting. And he's always good. He's always going to do things in these movies. And he's really aged. You know, he started as kind of this, he was supposed to be sort of the next Hollywood, like young heartthrob, you know, he's in Dead Poets Society and uh, a movie, uh, an 80s movie, or I think it was early 90s called Mystery Date. That's Mm -hmm. kind of a teen comedy that I have a soft spot for, but I can't say that, you know, it's a great movie by any means. But then he just seemed to say, yeah, no, I'm not interested in doing that. And just started picking all these really interesting movies. And when he teamed up with Linklater, I think that was a a big thing for him uh, because He did Reality Bites and then Before Sunrise. And Reality Bites was a fairly big hit, relatively conventional romantic comedy. Not one of my favorites. I know a lot of people uh, of our generation absolutely love it. It's not one of my favorites. I actually don't think it's one of Ethan Hawke's greatest performances. I think he's a little one note in that. But then he follows it up with Before Sunrise. And I sort of feel like that was a crossroads for him as far as I can keep go. I can go do these mainstream romantic comedies. I'm incredibly good looking. I'm incredibly charming. I can make a career or I can go make movies with this guy from Austin and find other directors that are interesting to me. And and that's the path he took. And I think that's the far more interesting path for him to have taken. I think the best way I can describe him, this is a bit morbid, but I sort of feel like he's having the career that we could have seen River Phoenix have if tragedy hadn't befallen him. And, and it's a good thing. I think Ethan Hawke's amazing. You know, I'm reminded of of something that Phil Juano said to me last year. And, you know, we were talking about roles that actors choose to take. And he's basically said just flat out, you know, Dana, actors want to give interesting performances. They want to do interesting stories. He said the big giant tentpole films, and he cited uh, Daniel Craig with the James Bond film. He just said, "Do do you have any idea how much work that is? Like, do you have any idea how much work goes into making these big, giant, massive productions? He said, you know, a lot of time actors just want to do really interesting characters. And I really feel like that Ethan Hawke has, has chosen that path. You know, he could very easily, like you said, he could he could continue to be, you know, in big budget films. But he has chosen to do interesting roles. And I think they, I think a lot of actors, and I can't speak, I'm not an actor myself, so I can't speak for that, but I think they get probably, now not financially speaking, but they probably get a lot more fulfillment out of doing these somewhat smaller roles, which are far, tend to be far more interesting characters. And especially at the time that he would have been, you know, I, I actually, 
tend to defend modern tent poles. I, I think we have a a higher quality of tent pole on the whole being made now than we've really ever had at any point in history. You know, people. I think have a bit of nostalgia for 80s tent poles because we got E.T. and Raiders and Back to the Future. And yeah, those were all great. But man, there was an enormous amount of shit that came out in the 80s and 90s as far as big budget Hollywood movies go. You look at the Marvel movies and their track record. You may, you know, people, a lot of people don't like them. They think they're taking over Hollywood. But the quality of those movies is exceptional. So I think actors today get to do a little bit more of that. But when he would have been making these choices... You know, go back to 1995 and look at what the major summer tent poles in 1995 were. And I mean, Die Hard with a Vengeance is probably the best one. And that's not even the best Die Hard movie. And so he's making a decision at that point where it really is. I'm not going to get to do interesting movies. I'm going to forego getting rich. And just try and make these really interesting projects. I do think there is a major temple out there for Ethan Hawke somewhere. I know that at one point he was rumored for Doctor Strange. And I think he would have actually been great uh, as Doctor Strange. I think Benedict Cumberbatch is good. But I think Ethan Hawke would have been amazing. uh, Because I think he can bring something interesting to one of those. If people haven't seen it, it doesn't fit our scope. But there's a indie sort of indie horror movie he made a few years ago called Daybreakers that is probably the closest to what would have been a mainstream tentpole. It's just it was made for, you know, a 20th of the cost. And he's really great in that. I mean, he's just always so good in everything he does. And I think he's one of those actors I'm kind of gushing about Ethan Hawke. Sorry to all the listeners, but I really can't describe how much I love Ethan Hawke. I I think he's one of the best actors of his generation. I would go as far as to say he's one of the best actors of all time. For my third pick, this one, I think I would have eventually gotten this. This movie would have eventually made it on the list, although I don't believe that it would have come out on volume three or maybe even volume 20. It's a movie that I've always enjoyed, but I was inspired to think about this movie a little bit more based on something you told me on volume two when I was talking about the movie Iron Eagle. And you had pointed out something that I didn't even realize until you said it, and that was that the U.S. Air Force did not grant permission for the filmmakers to use American F-16 fighter jets. And that's why they had to use the Israeli F-16s and hence why the interesting camouflage that I've never before or since seen on an American F-16. I immediately thought about the movie Top Gun. And I said, well, that movie had participation from the the U.S. Navy. And it almost didn't have participation from the U.S. Navy because of a movie that came out in 1980. And that movie is called The Final Countdown. And it stars Kirk Douglas and Martin Sheen. Now, the absurdly crazy premise of this movie is that a modern-day aircraft carrier for one reason or another, gets caught in some type of mystical time warp, and the entire aircraft carrier and its crew find themselves in the Pacific just days before the attack on Pearl Harbor. I'm not going to get too much further into it, but they actually have an opportunity to prevent Pearl Harbor with the power of this you know, modern-day aircraft carrier. I decided I'm going to watch this movie again, and I watched it on Wednesday. And again, it's got Kirk Douglas and Martin Sheen in it. Right there, so that, that should say, okay, I'm going to give this movie a shot. But it also had full participation by the United States Navy. And in particular, you know, most people look at Top Gun as sort of that introduction of the F-14 Tomcat into major motion pictures, when in fact the final countdown had much more aerial footage of F-14 Tomcats. 
And I say that Top Gun almost didn't get the opportunity to have the U.S. Navy involvement because there was a hell of a lot of controversy surrounding the production of the final countdown. There was, uh, and I'm not going to get into the particulars of it. I'll just ask people to research it. But there was a lot of, uh, lot of shenanigans that went on involving the filmmakers and some, some people that were representing the U.S. Navy. And it almost derailed the U.S. Navy ever participating in a motion picture again. But having said that, some of the aerial footage, and again, this is 1980. This is, this is pre-CGI. There are at least 10 to 12 authentic military aircraft from World War II and modern day, modern day meaning 1980, that are present throughout this film. It's a very, very entertaining movie. You are on board the USS Nimitz, the most advanced nuclear supership in the American arsenal, carrying a complement of 102 aircraft and 6,000 men. The Nimitz is on routine duty, guarding the waters of the South Pacific. That force air is in real trouble. But within minutes, a bizarre, unexplainable phenomenon of nature will transport the Nimitz 40 years back in time. Back to the day of infamy. Back to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. My gosh, look at that. This is the captain. I'm speaking to every man aboard this ship. The storm has had some effect on time, as we know it. It, it created a portal. A door into another era. Today... It's a ridiculous premise, much like Iron Eagle. I guess I keep, I, I, I don't know if I'm going to continue to, you know, recommend movies that involve United States fighter jets, but um, this one had kind of a, a ridiculous premise, but at the same time, I thought it was a really enjoyable film, and I really, really appreciated the involvement of the F-14 Tomcat. So, Mike, have you seen 1980s The Final Countdown? So, this is my turn to uh, to be a little little sad. Uh, I This movie has been on my list for a very long time to watch. And I, it's one of those movies that I've been aware of it for years. Even when I was a kid, I had friends who loved it, and I just never got around to seeing it. Uh, and I know that one of the things that it is so well known for is its aerial footage that that there is some some amazing dogfight scenes and just just footage of planes in it uh, but I have not seen it and so I would definitely I definitely need to watch that I'm actually going to put that at the top of the list of movies to watch uh, before we record again because I I want to see it and I want to talk about it well I will say a couple things about the film there is a very incredibly eye-opening little twist that happens right before the credits roll basically at the very end of the movie that kind of wraps up the entire story and I'm not I'm certainly not going to say what it is but it's one of those aha moments and I'm not going to say more than that, but I w will say, you know, if I've got one that I would call it kind of a major complaint about the movie is that the aerial scenes are phenomenal, but the soundtrack or the musical score for me didn't sync up with what was happening on screen. And it didn't, 
it just didn't feel like it flowed well. But that, I'm that's that. I mean, maybe that's not a major critique. That's a minor critique because I'm still jaw on the floor watching a few of the things they do with the Tomcat, like blows Top Gun out of the water. I mean, and I mean that, and I say that as someone who loves Top Gun. But the some of the aerial footage and some of the stuff they did, and I did some research. All right, they did some amazing things with these Tomcats in this movie. So I'm excited to hear your thoughts on the film. And uh, I I do love that you just uh, got instantly stuck in the head of every person listening to this. Europe's the final countdown, so yeah. everybody now is listening to this going do 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 do. So Dana, where can I actually watch this one? Because yeah. I know you uh, you tracked this. Yeah. So let's let's uh, I'm just going to go through my three picks of where they're available, and then I'm once again. Again, I'll go to you just to go through your three picks one more time, just as we're wrapping up on this. Okay, so Back to School is actually available. I don't know if you know this, Mike. Are you aware that YouTube now has a a channel, a dedicated channel by YouTube that does have free movies that do have ads that play with them? I am aware, yes. Okay, so Back to School, as of yesterday, is available on YouTube movies for free. But understand that throughout the 90-minute runtime, you might get two or three commercials that play 30 second ads or 15 second skippable ads or whatever. So back to school is available on YouTube for free. Jaws 2, as I mentioned, is available on Netflix as of right now. And again, I can only speak to the United States Netflix streaming service. I don't know about other countries. And the final countdown is available on the app Vudu as one of their free movies. Now, much like YouTube, Vudu does have a, a, a litany of movies that are free to watch. Again, just mentioned that they do play ads from time to time. But I give those a pass because they're not edited films. They're not like watching something on TV where it's, you know, it's been edited for time and for content. And especially the YouTube ones, those ads, they come and go like that. So that's how those three films are available. What about your three recommendations? One more time. How are they available? So uh, all three of mine are not streaming anywhere for free right now, but they all are readily available for digital rental or digital purchase on every major streaming service, uh, iTunes, YouTube, Google Play, Amazon. They're, they're, all, they're all out there for, uh, for digital rental or purchase, and they're all uh, around three bucks. Uh, most of them are, are relatively cheap. And for people who have Cinemax subscriptions, Gross Point Blank is streaming on uh, Max Go uh, as well. So if you happen to have a Cinemax subscription, you can watch it on Max Go. Um, one thing I do think you and I have talked about, Dana, but we should maybe mention, and they, they're not a sponsor, but JustWatch.com is a great resource to find where these movies are streaming. That's how we tend to find where they're streaming at. And so if you haven't checked out that site, I, I would definitely recommend our listeners to check that out. All right. So if people want to follow you on social media, uh, I am at Hibachi Justice on Twitter. I'm also at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd, which is where you can also find our Letterboxd list. It's just under 20th Century Movie Club. Excellent. All right. If you want to email the show, let us know what you thought about this week's picks and any of the previous picks that we've done. You can email us at thedanabucklershow at gmail.com. So Mike, once again, thank you for joining us on the show. And, uh, I think we're going to be bringing on a special guest for Volume 4. I'm looking forward to it. Outstanding. Thanks for being on the show, Mike. I always appreciate it. Thanks, Dana. All right. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.